0: Welcome to episode 79 of the MMA Rundown Podcast. Got a few things to talk about this week and anyway, what was a pretty busy week in combat sports, uh, not just in MMA, but also in judo and also in wrestling. Uh, but we'll start off with MMA and pretty much go through MMA first. So we'll start with Corey Sandhagen winning over Mom Marais in the main event uh, at UFC Fight Island 5 with a spinning wheel kick, knockdown, and then finished up with a ground and pound to get the win. Uh, then I'll recap the entire card, which had a lot of really exciting fights on it, including an amazing knockout by Joaquin Buckley. Talk about the upcoming UFC Fight Island card. There'll be UFC Fight Island 6, headlined by the Korean Zombie and Brian Ortega. Uh, fingers crossed that nothing's going to happen to either of those two, given that this fight seems to be put together a bunch of times and been broken apart a bunch of times. Uh, so I'll, I'll cover that and then the rest, of the, cards, the rest of the fights that are on that card. From there, a very interesting conversation that came up early in the week was when Mike Perry offered to sell off a spot in his corner for his upcoming fight and Durant decided that it'd be worth his time to bid $5,000 and try to earn that spot, so I'm not sure that there's a big update on that uh, since that story came out, but there are a lot of other side conversations that came up and I'll talk about those. A bit of a weird storyline. Uh, I, I guess it's not that weird and that's happened a bunch of times recently, but it's just getting to the point where it, it, it's just frustrating. But Rafael Dos is 15 days out from his fight with Islam Makachev, tested positive for COVID and it was determined that rather than using the 15-day period, looking for a replacement in the meantime, but seeing if Dos Andres can get better and test negative before the 15 days are up, that they would just pull him out of the fight instead. So now Makachev's looking for someone to fight him in RDA's place, and doesn't seem like they're going anywhere with that. So I'll talk about that whole situation. Then we go to a couple other combat sports So we start off with. We'll then go next to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, where the IBJJF PANS just took place. Uh, They just finished up. Part of the reason why this is going to be coming out so late is because I was watching all of the Black Belt Finals and wanted to get those in before I recorded this. So I'll go through all the results at Black Belt and a couple other interesting results that happened at the lower belts, including at Brown Belt, uh, where Mason Fowler took gold in his weight class and then took silver in the Absolute. And then the last thing to talk about will be the USA Wrestling Senior National Tournament that also took place. So back to the start, we have Courtney Sanhagen versus Mom Marais. This fight wasn't necessarily that surprising in how it was going, at least in the first round. I kind of figured that Sanhagen would be trying to fight from the outside. Uh, pick Marais apart. Marais has had some issues in some recent fights where he gets tired towards the end of the fight so if he can survive the storm early and then start to pick him apart late, that's really going to be where your opportunity is at. This was a five round fight for Sandhagen, which you figured would definitely give him an advantage there and work in his favor. Did very well in the first round, was able to pick Marais apart from a distance, didn't take too much damage. Marais exploded at him a couple times but wasn't all that successful. And so it looked like this was going as planned for Sandhagen. He was going to work his way through the fight uh, continue to chip away at him. If he can win those early rounds, great. If not, at least tire out Marlon Moraes. But he did win that first round. Uh, so I figured, I'd give it a couple more rounds and then we're going to start seeing a real attempt to go for a finish. But early in the second round, Clips Moraes uh, gets some swelling underneath Moraes's eye. And then you can hear him say that he broke his orbital bone. No, I, we don't have any confirmation of that. We'll actually have to figure that out. Everyone's just assuming because Corey Sanding had said that that's actually the case. Um, but either way, uh, Moraes was definitely hurt from that punch. Uh, and then from there, Sandhagen was coming in for the kill, went for a spinning wheel kick. I was able to land pretty much with, like, with his calf on the top of the head, but it still looked like it, it hit Mirais in a way where Marais wasn't expecting. Uh, definitely knocked him off balance, and while he was on the ground, Sandhagen was just throwing a lot of heavy shots. Mirais blocked a few, a few got through. It looked like he was still kind of fighting through, but at the same point, he just got dropped with a spinning wheel kick. Uh, he was, had some time to work on the ground, really wasn't improving position all that much. So really can't be that upset with the, the way that it finished up. He did have a complaint saying that he felt like—and or and by he, I mean, Marais had a complaint saying that he felt like the stoppage was a little bit early, but with that being said, I don't think that was the stoppage. That was all too bad, and he had a chance to recover. He had a chance to try to improve position, really didn't do so. So I, I wouldn't be that upset—or I, I personally am not that upset up by it. Uh, if Marais feels like he could have been given a little bit more time, okay, whatever. I mean, he wasn't knocked unconscious, but at the same point, he wasn't doing a great job improving position after he got knocked down. Uh, so a big win there for Sandhagen probably the biggest winner in all this is going to be Aljamain Sterling And that had Marais come out and gotten a really dominant win, especially in early knockout, then Morais's one loss would have been to Cejudo, who's currently out of the title picture. He had a very dominant win over Aljamain Sterling, even though it was a couple of years back. So if anyone would have an argument to steal that spot from Sterling, it would have been Marais had he had an impressive win. By having Sanhagen get that win, Sanhagen is coming off of a loss to Sterling and a pretty quick loss at that. So it pretty much solidifies that Sterling should be the contender. The only question that's out there right now is why hasn't the UFC made this fight yet, and what's the holdup right now? On Twitter, it, it seems as though Jan is into the fight. It seems as though Australians into the fight. It seems as though the UFC's into it. The one thing that could ruin it at this point would be if Henry Cejudo decided that he wanted to come back after all. Um, and if he does, then you would definitely have to give him a title shot next. So the fact that they haven't made the fight yet is interesting to me. Cejudo is always talking as if he's like, ready to step in at any second, so it's not as though there's like anything new from him that leads me to believe that he's going to do that. But it does seem as though that's something to watch for in the future, where if this fight still hasn't been made, it seems like at this point the only person who should be leapfrogging Aljamain spelling would be Henry Cejudo. Just, just watch for that in the future. I, I don't know that's going to happen, but it is interesting. Um, but Cejudo this week also was posting a picture in front of the Olympic rings and saying that he's going to go back and try to become a two-time champion, which would be him implying that he's going to be going for the 2021 Olympics, probably at 57 kilograms, uh, which would be kind of tough for him. He had a lot of trouble making 125 in MMA with a day before weigh-in. He's not going to even have that much that much time if he's doing it for wrestling. Um, so I don't necessarily believe that he's actually going to make a run at the 2021 games. If he does, that'd be cool. It'd be fun to watch. But for someone who's complaining about money and that's being like the main reason why he retired in the first place... Going for the Olympics doesn't seem like the most, um, the most intelligent decision, unless it's something that just means so much to him that money doesn't even matter. But he's already an Olympic gold medal, so I don't know why that would be the case. Uh, but that is something he was implying. But it still wouldn't surprise me if, if he popped up and all of a sudden him versus Young was the title fight that was made rather than Sterling versus Young, because it feels like that Sterling versus Young fight should have been made, and it should have been made a while ago. As for the co event on this card... Uh, better fight than I expected between Maquan and Mirkani and Edson Barboza. I figured that Maquan would have a lot of difficulty in getting Barboza to the ground, uh, which for the most part he did. And I figured that as a result, Maquan would probably be gassed out on the feet. Um would be wasting a lot of energy trying to get Edson down to no success. And Edson would just start picking him apart at the end. To some extent that kind of happened, but also there were times when Maquan did get on top of Edson. Um, but late in the fight, Edson was starting to find a home for his right hand. Early on, Edson was primarily looking to throw kicks. Edson... On the feet, his biggest weakness tends to be his boxing. That's where he's had a lot of trouble in the past, uh, whether it was that, if we're going way back, that early upset to Jamie Varner, where Varner was able to pull his way into boxing range and knock him out. Uh, but a lot of other guys who've given him trouble have been able to give him trouble by getting within boxing range rather than playing within kicking range. Uh, so he wasn't initially looking to, to exchange in boxing range as much. He was more looking to kick from the distance. Uh, Amir Khani did a good enough job to to offer those checks there where it's kind of like, okay, well, if you're going to kick, you got to be worried about a check. And then also uh, attempting takedowns where Burbo's had to be careful about what, what kicks he would throw. So early on this fight wasn't as big of a blowout as I expected, but over time as decided that he was or at least he found that he was starting to find some openings with the punches. Initially it was with the right hook to the body, uh, but then soon soon after he was able to find the right straight to the head and it was really giving a lot of trouble to Makwan Mirkani before eventually getting the unanimous decision win here sort of weird on the judges scorecards that one judge gave it 29 28 130 27 and 130 26 uh, but i don't think anyone i i think pretty much everyone knew once the fight was over that as had won the fight the fight before that was a bit of a snoozer between ben rothwell and Marcin Tybura. something weird about Tybura where it feels like every time he fights it's just like there's just like nothing all that memorable about it i don't know like, like he's a decent fighter He's he, he's decent pretty much anywhere but it's not like there's any one thing about him that's all that memorable. And this fight, again, it was just one of those things where it's like, I, I mean, it was a decent heavyweight fight. There just wasn't much to it. Uh, but Tybura was able to get on top of Rothwell, I believe, at the end of the third round. He was able to take that round and take it uh, fairly dominantly. Uh, on the feet, Rothwell had some success early on, but Tybura was able to start timing Rothwell as he came in. Rothwell was doing a lot of shifting and then sort of like throwing these weird looping punches. And over time, Tybor was able to intercept those and w- was having some success. So he gets the win here. Uh, fight between Marcus Perez and Dries Duplessis. Perez, I, I, I mean, this fight lasted three minutes and twenty-two seconds. If you could have like frozen time three minutes in, and then like asked me to make a live bet, I would have like put a significant amount of money on Marcus Perez because Dries or Duplesis just looked like he was in over his head here, just really tight, really uh, just backing up against the fence the whole time. Uh, didn't look comfortable at all. Perez looked very comfortable. Uh, was picking apart a lot with his front kick, but wasn't landing any power shots quite yet. Looks like it was one of those things where over time, he's going to start finding some openings and that would come, uh, but it didn't. But up against the fence, he rushes in on Duplessis, uh, takes a right hand, or an overhand right that sort of stuns him, and rather than the forward pressure that we'd seen from Perez for much of the fight, he starts to back up. At that point, uh, Duplessis starts to come after him. Perez goes for like, one of those Yair Rodriguez elbows, and as he does it, um, Duplessis ends up landing a short hook, uh, that catches him right in the temple, drops him, and then while he's face down on the mat, takes a few more shots, and that's the end of the fight. Uh, so, a big win for duplessis, uh in his first fight in the UFC. The finish itself was a very memorable finish, and how he was able to catch the catch the hook to the dome or catch the hook to the top of the temple, and then get those finishes on the mat, or get those finishing punches while Perez was down. But for much of the fight, he really didn't look good at all. So, even though he's calling out guys who are in the top twenty right now, he's calling out Kevin Holland and trying to put some other big names in his mouth. I I was not that impressed with his performance. It was a a good finish. Hopefully, he'll come out a lot more comfortable in his next fight, but this wasn't a great performance for him. It was a great moment. Uh, He was able to capitalize on the moment that he had, but for the most part, he wasn't looking very good in this fight. Uh, The fight before that, we had Tom Aspinall versus Alan Badeau. Aspinall dominated this fight. On the feet, it it, it was somewhat close. Um, You you could tell Aspinall was a better striker, but Badeau was definitely dangerous, and Aspinall saw that, so he figured, okay, it's better off to try to work the way to the mat. Uh, so he was able to get a takedown up against the fence. Right off the takedown, landed immediately in mount. And it's one of those things with heavyweights where once a heavyweight gets mount, especially in MMA, that's a really tough spot to get out of. And Bado was unable to get out of there. Aspinall landed a bunch of heavy shots, and ref stepped in and called a TKO. the TKO. fight before that, we had Ilya Taporia versus Yusuf Zalal. Taporia was very successful in getting Zalal to the mat. Zalal really good about wiggling out of a lot of bad positions and finding ways not to get submitted, because uh, Taporia was coming after him with a lot of different attacks. Um... So first round definitely went to Taporia, got the takedown, and then was able to uh, attack for much of the round. Second round was a little bit closer. Uh, Taporia wasn't able to get on the top as much. Uh, and Zalal was definitely having more success on the feet when this fight was on the feet. Um, but for the most part, in, in pretty much every round, Taporia was able to get the fight on the ground. And when the fight was on the ground, it was mostly in favor of Ilya, even though he never was able to get the finish. On the prelims, we had Tom Breeze versus KB Buller. It ended up just being, just being a striking match the whole time. I'm not entirely sure what Buller's game was heading into this. I would have figured he would have been planning on grappling a little bit more, but n- never really got into those exchanges. Uh, but Brees was able to land some heavy shots early. Uh, surprisingly, those don't, didn't put Buller down, but then he lands a really heavy jab. That one did put Buller down and then was able to finish him on the mat. So a big win for Tom Brees. Uh, it feels like he's a guy who, like, maybe five, six years ago was one of those guys that people were talking about as a future star from England. Suffered a couple losses, and then people sort of gave up on him. Uh, had some layoffs as well. So he was sort of forgotten about. But now it, it seems like his grappling is still as good as it's ever been. Uh, Striking has been improving. I don't know that I see him as a future title contender, but I do think that if he's ever going to make a run to the point where he's going to start finding himself in the rankings, uh, that might be coming in the next year or so for Breeze. So he'll be someone to watch for. Uh, at heavyweight, we had Chris Dawkins versus Rodrigo Nascimento. Dawkins was a much better boxer and used that to his advantage. was able to knock Nascimento down early. Uh, as Nascimento was coming back up, got knocked down right again. And the ref stepped in and called a stop to the fight. Uh, Joaquin Buckley versus Impa Kasaganai. This was a fight that led to a fantastic knockout, um, fantastic highlight. So early on, I, I, I was interested to see how this would go because in both of their last fights, they were both fairly wild with, with their strikes. We saw Buckley chasing after Kevin Holland. Uh, landed a few shots here and there, but for the most part, was getting picked apart by the longer fighter in Kevin Holland, uh, in Kasaganai. He was fighting up against Maki who wasn't as good of a striker as Kevin Holland. I was able to get the win there, but there were definitely some moments there where those wild strikes almost put him in danger. So I was wondering how this would go. I was figuring it would be a bit more of a brawl, but I wasn't sure who was going to get the edge there. But early on, Buckley was definitely landing the harder shots. They go into the second round. Buckley throws a kick. Kasaganai catches it, uh, swings it off to the side. And then while he's still holding the kick, Buckley then turns around, goes spinning heel kick, lands it straight to the face, gets the knockout. Uh, at this point, I think there's over 12 million views on Twitter of that highlight, over like 340,000 likes, uh, one of the most viral videos that the UFC's ever put up. I'm sure they'll be putting in highlights moving forward. Anytime Joaquin Buckley fights, you're going to see that. It's kind of like with Anthony Pettis, where even though that Showtime kick was back in the WC days, every single time the Pettis fights, you're going to see it. Every single time that Buckley fights, whether it's for the UFC or anywhere else, you're going to see that, I'm sure. Uh, but also in, in different highlight packages, I'm sure it's going to be around for a while. Uh, so Buckley obviously got the $50,000 for performance of the night. A lot of people are talking about how he deserves a lot more money than that. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if DOC is giving him more than just the 50 grand. Uh, we don't know the exact number that's going to be, but it's also one of those things where it's kind of like, well, how do you judge how much he really deserves for the knockout? Like, are, are we putting monetary vol- value on every single time it's viewed on Twitter? Like, how many views is worth a dollar, for example? Like, I, I don't know that we have an exact number there, so there's a lot of people who hate the way that the UFC pays their fighters and immediately it's like using this as a way to attack them where it's like oh well he's only getting 50 grand wow the UFC's getting all this free exposure he deserves so much more I'm sure that the exposure that he's getting is worth more than 50 that the UFC's getting here is worth more than 50 grand it's just in terms of trying to put a a number on it uh, not exactly sure what that number is and again we don't know what the UFC's going to be paying him on the back end outside of that $50,000 bonus but I'm sure he'll be making more than just the 50 grand uh, especially that Dana White was talking to him after the fight and during his interview. Uh, the fight before that was Tony Kelly versus Ali Alkaisi. Both of these guys had some pretty close submission attempts, uh, especially in the first round. Alkaisi had a pretty tight guillotine that Kelly was able to get out of. Kelly had a nice triangle armbar where the armbar attack uh, definitely had bent Alkaisi's arm the wrong way, but Ali was tough enough to hold through and was able to eventually get out. Um, on the feet, for the most part, Kelly had the advantage here. On the ground, Kelly was attacking more, but there were times when Alkaisi was on top. Uh, But in the end, Tony Kelly gets the win here. 327 on one judge's scorecard, 29-29 on the other two. Um, fight between Giga Chikadze and Omar Morales, uh, both guys who like to strike. Chikadze was the more technical striker, and that kind of showed through for for much of the fight. Chikadze had Morales hurt, especially late in the third round. Wasn't able to get the finish, but was looking fantastic for the most part. Uh, Tracy Cortez versus Stephanie Egger. Uh, Egger's name was a familiar one to me. I didn't know where where I'd heard it before. Apparently, she actually did compete at ADCC. Didn't look like it in this match at all. Cortez was able to take her down at times. Uh, Egger was supposed to be the judo black belt. On the ground, Egger didn't look very dangerous. I'm not exactly sure. Maybe she's really good on top and just wasn't on top much in this match, or just got a little bit too uptight when she had her opportunities. I'm not sure what the case was there, but Cortez definitely dominated the grappling in this match, and for the most part, that was all she needed to get the win. And then first fight in the car was Bruno Silva versus Tagir Ulanbekov. Ulanbekov, more technical striker, also the better grappler, was able to take Silva down multiple times uh and also was able to land some nice shots on the feet as well but he gets the win here so that covers it for ufc fight night uh or ufc fight island five uh ufc fight island six is the one that's coming up on october 17th that one will be headlined by brian ortega and korean Zombie chan sung jung again fingers crossed hoping that nothing happens where this fight ends up getting broken apart we are losing henry gracie from the corner of Brian ortega apparently henry gracie tested positive for covid and it doesn't sound like given the way that the travel ranges were that he could like take some time uh retest and then see if he can be good to go by the 17th uh so they're just gonna have to go without him which sucks but I think Ortega will be fine at least in the jiu-jitsu aspect of this game I'm not sure who's gonna be replacing Henner in his corner but it still kind of sucks for him to lose one of his best coaches and uh, one of the coaches that he's really close with at that um that's that's going to be the case as of now hopefully no one else has to get pulled out of this fight uh, as for Chan Sung Jung, Uh, So far, everything seems normal with him, so let's hope for that. I would imagine that chan Jung is going to win this fight. He's going to win it pretty dominantly. He's a much better striker than Brad Ortega is. Ortega is good at getting people into grappling positions, but isn't... Like, he's good on the feet in terms of, like, tying people up, whether he has to pull guard or whether he's um, snapping people's necks down and attacking for submissions from the feet and dragging the fight to the mat that way. But his wrestling game, in terms of, like, shooting and taking guys down, isn't necessarily the best. And in this case, is it possible that he's going to be able to tie up Chan Sung Jung, snap his head down, and catch him or something? It's possible. Baron Ortega was able to become undefeated doing just that, part of the Max Hallway fight. But I don't see it as being the most likely thing. And on the feet, uh, Chan Sung Jung is just a much better technical boxer, very hard hitter, um, very good at slipping out of the way of shots and then countering with his own. And Ortega isn't exactly the best at disguising his punches. So I think Chan Sung Jung is going to hurt Ortega on the feet. Uh, we might see early where Jung drops Ortega a couple times. Ortega sort of stumbles to his back, gets ready to play guard. Uh, Jung motions to have him come back up and then looks to finish him again on the feet. It might make it tough for him where he's going to have to be really picky about when he's going to go in for the finish and when he's going to allow Ortega to stand back up. Uh, but I think Jung's just going to pick him apart and eventually get a TKO finish in this one. Uh, then we've got Chu Kagan versus Jessica Andrade. Andrade moving up from 115 up to 125 against Kagan, who is one of the top contenders at 125. Um, you, you're going to figure that you're going to get a typical Jukagin fight here where she's going to try to throw kicks on the outside and sort of like they're one punch at a time. Um, nothing all that heavy. Uh, just score some points from the outside, whereas Andrade would prefer that they get within um, boxing range, stay within tight range, and she's able to throw some bombs. Uh, but she's going to be the shorter fighter, and I, I think for the most part, Kagan's probably going to be successful here in just keeping this fight on the outside and just picking her apart and winning a really boring decision. But Andrade is very powerful, very dangerous. If she's able to get this within the grappling range, she can definitely take Jukagin down and win from the top position. So we'll see how that goes. But I kind of think this is going to be a boring fight where Jukagin going to scream every time she throws a strike, as she always does. And is going to just outpoint her. Uh, fight before that is Jimmy Crute versus Modestus Bukaskis. Don't know enough about Bukaskis, although I think I have seen him fight a couple times. Uh, but Crute's been a pretty good-looking Australian, so it'll be interesting to see how he looks in this fight as well. I think his last fight he won by Arm Triangle. I don't remember who it was against, but it was pretty nice. Uh, Surreal so gone. they've been trying to put him up against a lot of other up-and-comers recently and a lot of those fights have fallen through, but at least now they've got someone that hopefully is able to make it all the way to Saturday. Um, in Ante D'Elia, who's 17-3 and three at heavyweight. So it should be a good test for Gone. Uh, interesting fight. I believe that's going to be up at 145 for Thomas Almeida who is still 22-3 and three, which is, it, it feels like it's his record shouldn't be that high, but I guess he was undefeated for a while, but there was a time when he was a main eventer against Cody Garbrandt. Both were top Bantamweight prospects, and it felt like the winner of that fight was going to go pretty far. It turns out the winner of that fight, Cody Garbrandt, did go pretty far, ended up winning the Bantamweight title, whereas Thomas Almeida sort of got stuck in the middle of the, that, like top 15 of Bantamweight. Uh, very dangerous offensively, but just defensively had some issues, uh, would get caught a lot, and his chin wasn't necessarily the best. So moving, moving up to 145, it, it means he's going to be fighting more powerful opponents, but also means that he's not going to be cutting as much weight, so maybe that could be good for him in the long run. So we'll see how he looks there against Jonathan Martinez. Uh, good fight between Claudio Silva and James Krause. Claudio Silva, I believe, is like 5-0 in the UFC, but he's just had a long time between each fight, so people sort of forget about him and not, don't realize um, that he's still there. Krause has looked pretty good. Uh, sort of one of those guys who's hanging around the top 15. Uh, has taken some short-notice fights up at middleweight, uh, but is a pretty solid welterweight, uh, so this should be a pretty good fight. Silva typically looks to dominate guys on the ground. James Krause is a very good black belt. Um, recently fought Sergio Marais, who tried to do a similar thing to what you'd imagine Silva would do and was able to stay out of trouble for the most part, and then win the fight on the feet. Uh, then we've got Matej Gamrot um, versus Guram Kudaladze. Uh, Gamrot, I believe, is a KSW champion, uh, but he's been doing fantastic outside the UFC. A lot of people expect him to jump into the top 15 relatively quickly, uh, so this will be a good first opportunity for him to to show what he's got. On the prelims, we've got Jillian Robertson, who recently earned her black belt going up against Pollyanna Batelo. Uh, we got June Young Park versus John Phillips, who is going to be returning since that rough loss that he had, he had against Kamzat Shumayev. Uh We've got Gadzi Murad on Tigolov versus Max Grishin, Sayed Nurmagomedov versus Mark Striegel. And Jamie Malarkey versus Farius Ziam. Uh, so that covers it for UFC Fight Island 6, which is going to be the card that's coming up next week. Uh, a couple other UFC topics to get to. We've got the Mike Perry corner idea that he's talking about. So, just to run down what happened. So Mike Perry in his last fight just had his girlfriend, Latoya Gonzalez in there. Typically for a corner, you can have three guys or up to three people in there. Uh, so he had just one and he decided, you know what, for my next fight, I'm going to have Latoya in my corner again. Uh, but instead of having those two empty spots, I'm actually going to auction off one of those spots. Uh, so whoever wants to pay me the most money, they can, they can be in my corner as well. And just as an idea, that's a very interesting idea. I think some people are saying that Cody McKenzie had done that in the past as well. Um, but it's an interesting way for for Mike Perry to make some extra money uh, if he feels that's going to be how it'll work. Now, why I say if that if that's what he feels is going to work, what I what I mean by that is that the way the UFC pay structure works, if you're making just a basic like twenty thousand twenty and twenty for example, you're going to get paid twenty thousand dollars for showing to, for showing up, and you're going to make another twenty thousand dollars for winning. Uh, so obviously, if you can win, that twenty thousand dollar bonus is going to be a pretty big boost to what you're making. Uh, for Mike Perry, I'm not exactly sure where he's at right now, but to say he's at 50, 50 and 50 is probably going to be a little bit on the low side, um, but even still, it, it more than gen- it, it more than demonstrates the point I'm about to make. If he is making 50 and 50, let's say that the, that's the number, and I guess while I talk through this, I'll actually look up what Mike Perry's last disclosed pay was um, so we can be more accurate on that. But either way, let's just say it is 50 and 50. If Mike Perry... Has the best corner possible, and that corner does a good enough job where it 's able to get him a win. Uh, they offer some advice that really changes the course of the fight for him that changes up his strategy where it puts him in a position where he can win then all of a sudden, effectively having that that correct person in the corner they're they 're not just worth five thousand dollars or ten thousand dollars whatever the top bidder would be they 're they 're effectively worth the ninety thousand dollars that you 're going to be getting i I guess now, granted once you take other fees out it 's not quite ninety or not quite um well, let me say this first. The number, the reason I just said $90,000 is because 90000 is what just, what just came up. So Perry just made ninety and ninety for his last fight. So $90,000 90 is the number for Mike Perry. So if Mike Perry wins a fight, he gets a $90,000 bonus just for the win bonus. We don't even know if the thing that his corner tells him to do might get him a submission of the night or a performance of the night or any of that. So effectively, if you're trying to make the most money you possibly can and you're Mike Perry, make, making sure you do whatever you can to get that win bonus is probably going to be your best option unless someone is going to pay $90,000 or more to get in your corner. Now, with that being said, there are are also fights where it's like, no matter who's in your corner, they're probably not going to have a big effect on the result. Like, if you're fighting Mickey Gall and you're Mike Perry and you're a much better fighter than Mickey Gall, you can just have Latoya Gonzalez in your corner and you'll win. Uh, There are tougher fights. He is fighting Robbie Lawler next, for example, where it's probably best to have the best possible people in your corner. uh, Because sometimes they can make some small adjustments or make some calls that... That'll affect how the fight goes for you and, and really make a big difference. So, uh, again, if you're Mike Perry and you're trying to do what's going to make you the most money, though I like the idea of maybe getting someone to pay $5,000 or $10,000 or hell, even $20,000 to be in your corner, if you don't win and there was something that someone you would you could have had in your corner who's more more qualified to be in there, that, if there's something that they could have done to to help you win that fight, but they weren't there because you had someone who paid $10,000 in their place... In the end, that's a net loss of $80,000. So you've got to be careful about doing this. I understand that people like to look at it like, oh, he's just getting $5,000 free, or he's getting $10,000 free, or he's getting whatever the top better offers him. But you do have to account for that win bonus. And although there can be plenty of cases where the corner isn't going to be the difference between the winner or the loss and the night of the fight, there are cases when that is the case. And you, you don't want to lose that win bonus because it's going to be bigger than the amount of money that you're going to get paid to, to have some rando in your corner. Now with that being said, if there are going to be three spots in his corner, maybe he does have like a a really good general mixed martial arts coach. He has whoever the random person is, whether that's Darren Till or someone else, and then he has Latoya Gonzalez, and maybe maybe he's just fine. But generally speaking, doing everything in your power to put yourself in the best position to win is going to be the best way that you can go about making more money in the UFC. So as a general rule, I I think that's something that should be considered here for Mike Perry. I know a lot of people are saying, wow, what what a great entrepreneur, what a great business spirit. Um, what a smart move. I, I think the jury's still out on that one, whether or not it's the smartest idea ever. Um, now, as far as the idea of Darren Till being in this corner of all of all fighters, I think that's a hilarious idea. Apparently, these guys were actually pretty cool with each other a few years back, um, but Darren Till's a bit of a trash talker, and Mike Perry has fairly thin skin, so at some point or another, Darren Till got under Mike Perry's skin, and now the two of them don't exactly like each other all that much. Uh, I, I think... From Darren Till's side, he just kind of has fun with it, and he doesn't, like, have any personal animus towards Mike Perry, but Mike Perry definitely has personal animus towards Darren Till. So, it, it doesn't seem as though it would make the most sense for Darren Till to be in the corner. I think in Mike Perry's case, if Till is a top bidder, he'd probably rather um, give Till his money back and just go to the second highest bidder instead. So I, I don't think we're actually going to get this case, this situation where two guys who sort of have a bit of a beef with each other, especially when the fighter really doesn't like the cornerman. I don't know that we're going to see a situation where is actually in the corner. It would be fantastic theater if that happens, um, but I don't think it is going to happen. Uh, next topic to talk about is the weird situation with Rafael dos Anjos and Islam Makachev. So this is one that's, and, and I mentioned it before, but it just is still annoying the crap out of me. When COVID first came up, And we had very limited information. A lot of decisions were made back in that time, um, back in March, uh, even in early to mid-April in terms of how to approach things. And since then, a lot of new information has come out in terms of how long COVID, in this particular uh, story, in terms of how long COVID takes to heal or to get over, um, what sort of treatments can be used that can speed it up. And based on what we know, if you have COVID Ten days seems like an appropriate amount of time to assume that someone to be able to get back and get better, uh, especially if it's treated right. Now, in the particular case that is very well known in the U.S. right now, the president, Donald Trump, got it on a Thursday, I believe, and his doctor had a note on the Saturday after uh, saying that he was good. So if you're in a similar situation here and you assume that Rafael dos Anjos, a mid-30s professional mixed martial arts fighter uh, who's in great shape, assuming that he can recover from COVID at the same speed as Donald Trump, the 74-year-old obese guy, um, it, you would still have like five days after that where he can still cut weight and he can still make um, make the weight limit here and fight Islam Makhachev. But for whatever reason, this fight was just shut down and they decided, don't no, we're not going to do the fight. And I, I just don't think it makes a lot of sense at this point. So for RDA, he has a good opportunity here against Islam Makhachev. I don't think it's a great style matchup for him, but even still, it's a good opportunity to fight. He's probably going to be just fine by the time the, this fight comes around. He'll probably be fine before everyone really gets heavy into weight cutting. Um, He'll probably be fine the night before the fight. I'm sure he'll be fine the day of the fight. Wondering why he can't fight because he's physically fine uh, and he no longer has COVID. But we're using these old rules again. And as a result, he's going to have to miss this fight. And it's just a missed opportunity for him. It's a missed paycheck. And we don't know when he's going to be fighting next. As for Islam Makachev, he's a guy who's had a real hard time finding guys with big names to fight him. And as a result, it's a difficulty moving up in the rankings. Here's a big opportunity for him where he's fighting a former lightweight champion. Um, big opportunity for him. And it gets taken away because the former lightweight champion, who is in fighting shape and is in his mid-30s, tests positive for something that takes like 10 days to get over. And that was 15 days out when he tested positive. So really sucks for Islam Makhachev. There's some talk about him still having someone jump in and having him fight them. It doesn't sound like anything's all that close. There's been talk about him potentially fighting Michael Chandler since he's going to be the replacement fighter on the card. They could at least put that Chandler versus Makhachev matchup together. And if Michael Chandler ends up having to step in for a title fight because either it could be Brigade, you miss it, then okay, whatever, it is what it is. But if not, then you can still have him fight against Islam Makhachev. Be a good test for him. If Makhachev gets the win, hopefully it pushes him into the top 10 where he actually can start getting some of those better matchups. Um, but if Chandler gets the win, then that's a well-respected guy that he beats. Makhachev at least had his opportunity at that point. Um, and then from there, I don't think as many people are going to be upset about Chandler being looked at as like a top five guy or a guy who could potentially slide into a title fight at that point so it's a fight that makes sense it's not like Chandler doesn't want it he's effectively saying that Makhachev is ranked too low for him even though Chandler technically isn't ranked in the UFC right now uh it's a fight I'd definitely like to see the Chandler versus Khabib fight is a very interesting fight to me in that it, it would be a guy that would force Khabib that'd make it very very difficult for Khabib to take him down and control him on the ground Makhchev, in some ways, plays a similar game to Khabib. Now, Grand Makhchev is also Southpaw, rather than the Orthodox Khabib. Makhchev's striking is definitely cleaner than Khabib's is. Um, so they're, they're different fighters, but with that being said, it would still be an interesting matchup to see how that fight would go. And it doesn't look like we're going to get to see it, which is a bit of a bummer that Chandler wasn't willing to take it. But looks like old rules surrounding COVID that haven't been updated are going to are going to hurt both of these fighters here, and it's not going to help the card either, because it's taking a good fight off of the card as well. So just wanted to sort of tell that story for what it is um, and give my take on it there, at least in terms of the UFC. And again, I don't know if this is on the UFC or who it's on specifically, if there's a commission overseeing it or if this is something with flash entertainment. Uh, There are a lot of precautions that are being put in place in Abu Dhabi right now uh, by the local government to allow Fight Island to happen. So that might be a thing that they're in charge of. I guess it sort of could be similar to what's going on right now with Henry Gracie, where they just have a time when the people on that card have to fly out. And if you're not going to be able to test negative by the time that you fly out, like a week in advance, even if you would be fine during the fight week, that's too late. Maybe that's the thinking there, but it it just feels like this is a fight that should not have been taken off the card. It's a fight that probably we're going to be feeling stupid when both of them are perfectly healthy the night of the fight, um, but they couldn't have the fight because two weeks ago one of them had it effectively was a bad cold, and we don't even know if that's how, um, how RDA feels right now. I don't even know if he's asymptomatic, if he's Um, got a bad cough right now if he can train like where he's at with that so just just a stupid situation all around but that's where we're at and hopefully at some point we're going to start to see all this stuff get repealed I don't know if they're going to wait for maybe at this point they're just waiting for there to be a vaccine where it's like okay well now if you want you can take it at this point we're free to go back to normal and that's just something that everyone's waiting for I know in a lot of places there was talk of this being like a two week thing and then we can go back to normal life and we just haven't and maybe maybe that's what the hold up has been so once there is a vaccine in place, everyone can be like, okay, well now if this is what you need to feel comfortable, go ahead and get it. But now we can actually use this as a reason to to go back to normal. But either way, it, it, it just feels stupid that this fight's being being taken off the card. I've, I've said this like three or four times. Don't need to say it again. That's my point. On to the next topic. Uh, so next topic is going to be the IBJJF PAMS recap. Um, before I get into the recap, just a brief note. Um, That's sort of tied to MMA. Uh, maybe yes, maybe no. But the IBJJF is the biggest tournament in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Um, their Gi Championship is the premier Gi, gi Championship. If you win IBJJF Worlds, um, then you, you can you can effectively call yourself a world champion. Like if I win a Nago World Championship in the Gi, no one's really going to call me a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu World Champion. If I win an IBJJF World Championship in the Gi, then people will actually consider that. Uh, in no Gi, for the most part, people look at ADCC as the premier Championship, I agree with that. IBJJF does a Nogi championship as well. People still acknowledge those. Um, But for the longest time, reaping has not been allowed at these championships. Heel hooks have not been allowed at those championships, which is really bizarre given how prevalent heel hooks are in other Nogi tournaments and in other Nogi shows. And it looks like after a long time, the IBJJF has finally come to their senses and they're going to be allowing reaping and they're also going to be allowing heel hooks in the brown and black belt divisions. So, from a competitive standpoint, it definitely is going to make those tournaments more meaningful to win, Uh, given that being able to win a Nogi championship where heel hooks and reaping isn't allowed. I mean, it it still requires very good jujitsu to do that, but it's just not... It's a weird asterisk asterisk to have. Also, there are a lot of gyms out there, and some of these gyms also are gyms where MMA guys train at. Some of them are MMA gyms themselves. They really like to focus on IBJJF rules and try to prepare their athletes and prepare their fighters for IBJJF tournaments, because that's considered the premier championship. So as a result, there really hasn't been a really big focus on leg lock positions where reaping's involved, uh, or heel hooks. And so now that these are going to be allowed at the Brown and black belt division, we're probably going to see more of a focus on these positions, the reaping and the heel hooks at those gyms, which is going to be a good thing. Um, you would also have to assume that people are going to see the writing on the wall here and say, okay, but even still, Purple Belts aren't allowed to reap, which is weird because pretty much every other tournament they're allowed to. Uh, purple Belts aren't allowed to heel hook, which is weird because even though, even though most other tournaments allow them to. Um, so I, I, and, and even still, if you have a, a good contention of brown and black belts at the gym and now that heel hooks and reaping is legal, if they're learning it in their classes, the lower belts going to learn in their classes as well. So I think these techniques are going to be practiced a little bit more broadly than they even are right now, which is going to be a good thing. So if there are MMA fighters who are training during these classes, they're going to get more exposure to those. I really feel like leg locks have been underutilized in MMA recently. We've seen them used a lot more than they had been in the past. Uh, I've got a handful of breakdowns even from the last few months, um, definitely since COVID, where we've seen some nice leg lock finishes in the UFC. Uh, so maybe this move over time is going to have some effects where it eventually comes back to MMA. We're going to start seeing even more leg lock than we already have because um, the more people are training it, the better they are at them. And the better they are at them, you figure the more they're going to be able to catch them have success with them both within Jiu Jitsu competitions, but then also with an MMA uh, for the people who are doing those Jiu Jitsu classes and then also competing in, in MMA. Uh, so that was worth mentioning. Uh, but onto the actual results from the IBJJF Pans at the lower belts, the biggest and most notable results would probably be coming at the adult Brown Belt division. Um, one of the biggest stars that's in the adult Brown Belt division is Mason Fowler. Uh, main reason why he would be considered a big star is because he has had a lot of success at Submission Underground, uh, was is very good no got to ADCC in 2019, uh, had a very close match with Craig Jones that he arguably could have been winning up until the end when he ended up getting caught in a guillotine choke going for a takedown. Uh, so Craig Jones then won that match, then was able to move on within the tournament, um, eventually getting a getting to the finals against Mateus Denise, where he was unfortunately lost that match. Um, but since then, Mason Fowler's had a couple matches in submission underground under the EBI rule set against Craig Jones and was able to win them both. And as a result, is now the EBI champion, and will be defending that title against, uh, I believe, Satoshi Ishi, uh, in their next event in December. But because of the success he's had in Submission Underground, he's definitely gained a name here. Still has his brown belt, although I'm sure that won't last for a whole lot longer. Um, but in his division at Brown Belt Pans, was able to win there and take gold. Got to the finals of the Absolute, uh, part of losing to Andy Murasaki, which was a very surprising result. Uh, not to say that Murasaki isn't good. Murasaki won the lightweight division look fantastic doing so but again as i just mentioned murasaki won the lightweight division which is like 168 pounds with your gion, so around 165 pounds uh mason fowler a much bigger guy over 200 pounds uh going against murasaki fowler definitely had the edge in the wrestling but murasaki um was definitely more technical on the mat very good from top uh fowler had initially pulled guard and was trying to work his way up uh did get a sweep early on but great guard passing Technique by Murasaki he was very heavy from top, even though he was just a lightweight, uh, but very good with his um, weight distribution. Uh, eventually, was able to get a guard pass, um, got Fowler's back, I believe, at one point as well. Uh, so ended up winning like twelve to two or something dominant like that. Uh, so you figure with both these guys, uh, they'll be moving into black belt fairly soon, and once they do, they'll they'll be tough guys in the draw in those divisions. They're going to be giving a lot of guys problems and may even advance pretty far. Um, there were a couple of people who recently got their black belt to one or we recently got their black belts, who won uh, black belt PANS, and I'll get to them eventually. Uh, so it'll be interesting to watch for those people. Um, Tiny Dauper is another one to mention um, from AOJ, uh, but he also was able to get a big win in the brown belt division and got promoted to black belts on the podium. But in terms of this tournament as a whole, if you aren't familiar with PANS, in a way, Jiu-Jitsu sort of treats it in a similar manner to how tennis treats it, where with tennis, there's like a Grand Slam where there's like four major tournaments. Now in tennis, it's not as though there's like four major tournaments and then a world championship on top of that, or at least the world championship that they have, no one really cares all that much about. It's like the ATP finals, like the top eight guys go. Um, but people are much more interested in whoever wins Wimbledon than whoever wins the ATP finals. Um, but you do see, there are like four main tournaments that people look at as the major ones. So there's the Europeans, uh, there's Brazilians, there is Pans, and there's Worlds. Uh, so this is one of those Grand Slam tournaments where a lot of the best people come out. Now with that being said, it was in Florida. A lot of people who lived in Brazil or who lived in Europe were not able to fly out to Florida and get into America for this. So we didn't exactly get like the full roster of guys that you typically would see at a Pan's Championship. But we still did get a lot of high level grapplers here. Um, so we we got a lot of um, really good matches. So as far as results go, at Black Belt, I'll start with Roosterweight, which is, um I'm trying to think what their number is, it's probably somewhere like around the 125 range. Um, but it's sort of like the flyweight for Brazilian Jutta too. uh, but Lucas Pinheiro was able to win the finals here against, uh, Francisco, um, Borges in the hundred or in the 141.5 light featherweight division. Again, these weights are with the guion. The, we had the first of the people who I was just talking about who recently got promoted to black belt, who are having immediate success with Josh Cisneros, Josh Cisneros winning this tournament. Um, Believe there were believe yeah, there were 15 different people who were signed up for this tournament. Um, so he had to get four wins to, to win a championship here. And not only did he get four wins, but he got some wins over some really big guys here. Um, so he won his first match against Joao Figueredo, not the biggest name. Um, but he had to face the number one seed as a result in the quarterfinals. Uh, that number one seed, of course, is Paulo Miao. And Cisneros pulled a really big upset here. was able to beat Paulo Miao against uh, the semifinals because a pretty easy win for him I guess against Ruben or Elijah Tagalog um, and then faces Pedro Diaz in the finals and was able to defeat Pedro Diaz. There were some complaints over the, the scoring in the end where Diaz got a quick sweep. So Cisneros was down 2 nothing. Cisneros was able to get a few different advantages, almost had a really gnarly Omapata, um, but wasn't able to ever finish on any sweep. Uh, almost finished a sweep where they were towards the edge of the mat. Diaz rolled towards the outside of the mat to escape and was given a penalty for that role, and then two points were awarded to Cisneros, which tied it up, but then Cisneros got the advantages from there. Uh, There's some talk where it's like, yeah, well, the role was a proper defense. He shouldn't be penalized for properly defending, but there are other ways to defend it other than the role. Uh, he also sort of oriented himself towards the edge of the mat when he did the roll, so I didn't have any issue with the call there. Uh, so I think Cisneros deserved the win that he got here at light feather. At featherweight, which is 154 pounds, um, I'm not sure how this bracketing worked out, because... They had a fantastic match in the quarterfinals. that probably could have been a finals match between Mateus Gabriel and Kennedy Macial. Uh, Kennedy's the son of um, Cabrino. Also has had a lot of success at ADCC. I believe he finished second at the recent ADCC. He has a lot of success in Nogi. He's pretty good in Gi as well. Um, but he ended up losing to Mateus Gabriel in the quarterfinals. Uh, then Mateus Gabriel ended up beating uh, Richard Noguera to get to the finals. On the other half, we had... Um, Fantastic performance from Tiago Augusto. He gets all the way through the finals. uh, Had to knock off Gianni Grippo in the process to do it. Also have to knock off Samuel Nagai, who had a a surprise upset over uh, Isaac Dordaline on the way there. Uh, But in the end, uh, Tiago Macedo ends up getting the win over Mateus Gabriel in the finals. Very, very close at the end. Mateus Gabriel just had to come up on a sweep to get the win. Uh, Nearly gets Macedo's back. While he was on the back rather than going for both hooks to get the back points, goes for a, a choke from the side. Uh, we had, it, it's sort of like a, a modified bone arrow choke, it looked like. Uh, wasn't able to get enough pressure on that choke to get the finish. Tried to switch to an armbar at the end, uh, ran out of time. So Macedo, barely by the skin of his teeth, is able to get the win here. And beats Mateus Gabriel and wins the featherweight division. Up at lightweight, I believe this one is like 167, 168, somewhere in that area. Um, top half of the bracket. Jonathan Alves just had a fantastic performance. I believe he was at featherweight um, the last time that he competed in the Gi. Um, but he's been growing recently. He's still a pretty young kid. I think he's, he's like 20 or 21. Um, but he had a pretty big opportunity against Edgman, or against uh, Giannis Gracie. Uh, was able to get a huge win there on, on his half of the bracket in that semifinal. On the other side, Michael Guerra did really well. Um, was able to beat Henato Canuto in the semifinals there. Uh, so he goes to the finals, faces off against Jannat Alves, and um, Alves was able to pull guard first, got the first sweep, and then was able to stay ahead on the score. Ends up winning by a score of four to two. Uh, next weight class up is middleweight. Not exactly sure what, what weight this is at, but I think some, somewhere in the low one eighties. Um, surprising results. So there were twenty-five people in this bracket. The number twenty-five seed ended up being Jackson, a guy who, I believe recently, got his black belt, and he had a hell of a tournament. Uh, somewhat surprisingly, on his top half of the bracket, the number one seed was Levi Jones-Leary. Uh, Levi just didn't show up, so it's helpful for Nagai not to have to worry about him, I guess. Um, so, the guy who was supposed to face Levi Jones-Leary ends up pushing through to um, believe the quarterfinals, uh, faces off against Nagai, and Nagai gets the win there. Uh, so Nagai wins his half of the bracket on the other half. Uh, great performance by Ronaldo Jr. Uh, had to get had to beat Lucas Valencia in the semifinals, so we had a match between Nagai and um, Ronaldo Jr. And Jr. Um, surprisingly played on bottom a lot more than, than what we expected from him. He's very good at passing from top, really good at in space, uh, using a lot of Torriando passes, um, but was very successful from bottom. Never really was that close to getting his guard passed. Uh, got a couple of sweeps uh, and won a pretty dominant decision here. Or won a dominant match on points. At medium-heavy... Um, we had Otavio Souza getting on the left side of the bracket. Um, Santana ended up having to back out after getting injured in the absolute, uh, which would have made this bracket a little bit more exciting, but unfortunately he had to back out. Um, so Gabriel Almeida ends up getting through as a result. Um, I had to win a match first, but also, um, beat Enrique Silva, who had gotten through rather than Marilla Santana, who probably would have won that match otherwise. Uh, but Otavio Souza did well in his half of the bracket. Um, very weird, very weird match on the other, on the right side of the bracket. So, Mateus Luna gets to the semi, or gets to the, yeah, he got to the semifinals up against Manuel Webermar. Hebermar was supposed to be, or he was the number one seed. A lot of people expected him to get to the finals and would probably beat Otavius as a lot of people expected. And Hebermar was up two points, um, but didn't exactly have a lead with the advantages. And it looked like he had won the match and then. Like, with a second left, the referee just decides to stop, calls up another penalty on Hibomar, and I'm not sure what the penalty was for, even still. Uh, so then gives Mateus Luna two points, uh, gives Mateus Luna the lead. Uh, then they restart with one second left. Luna obviously doesn't get scored on during that one second. And so Hibomar ends up taking a loss here, which is sort of odd. Uh, but then Ot- Otavius ends up beating Mateus Luna in the finals uh, to win here. Up at heavyweight, this was a very weird bracket. Um, so we had... Mikey Musumecki, who has won the world championships at Light Featherweight, which was that 141 weight class, and also at Roosterweight, which was that flyweight weight class, for whatever reason, he was on a bit of a kick before COVID where he was fighting the absolute, uh, which is the open weight class, at the Europeans. Uh, he was talking about having a match with Herbert Santos where he's like, look, my my style really works well against bigger guys, uh, which to an extent makes sense. Uh, there are styles of Jiu Jitsu where you tend to move around your opponents and their styles of juicy where you kind of have to like move into them and like lift them and manipulate their weight a lot. Like if you play butterfly guard, uh, having a big size differential can make a difference there. Um, if you like to wrestle up on single legs a lot, that can have an effect if you're dealing with someone who's a lot bigger. Uh, but if you like to move around a guy a lot, it, it doesn't have as big of an effect and I think that's for a guy like Mikey Musumeci who does that a lot, who, who tends to move around his opponent, not necessarily move his opponent as much, he's had some success against some bigger guys so I figured, okay, well, Rather than doing his weight class, whether that be light light feather or rooster weight, and then also doing the open weight, he decided he would just do heavyweight instead. And as a result, he doesn't really have a lot of seeding points at this weight class. And as a result, he had to face the number two seed right away. And Orlando Montero, Orlando Montero is an absolute killer. And Mikey Musumecki ended up having to find that out the hard way. Uh, it was actually a pretty competitive match. Musumecki was getting close to taking Montero's back early on. They went out of bounds. Uh, reset. Uh, the, the big problem for Musumecki is that there was a moment where he was trying to, I believe he was going for like a Baron below finish, or at least was trying to like take Montero's back, uh, sort of slipped off and lost control of him. And during that scramble, Montero ended up coming up on top and was able to quickly pass his guard from there. And then once Montero was past his guard, uh, Musumecki could not get his guard back and was pretty much just, just screwed at that point. And Montero ends up getting the win. Uh, so he, he ends up doing pretty well against the semifinals. Um, Goes up against Dominique Bell of Autos. Uh, Bell gets the win over him. So you have an Atos versus Autos final with Gustavo Batista winning on the other half of the bracket. Um, weren't really any big names that ended up being on that side of the bracket. Roberto Jimenez was in the bracket but he ended up backing out. Um, probably got injured in the absolute. So Batista gets the finals and ends up beating his teammate. They actually did have a match which is nice a lot of times when you have two guys from the same team. They don't compete against each other So it was nice in this case that they actually did go out there and actually have a competitive match. Uh, But Gustavo Batista did get the win. Uh, He also worked his way into the Absolute uh, Finals for Black Belt at Super Heavy. This one was kind of a bummer because Keenan Cornelius, I saw him at this tournament because he was actually cornering some of his guys in the Purple Belt division. So I'm not sure what happened, but for whatever reason, he he just no-showed for his division. So he was supposed to have a match with Devontae Johnson. Uh, these guys went out at, at Nogi Pans last year. Uh, so it would been interesting to see these guys in, go against each other in the Gi. Uh, but instead, Devontae Johnson just slides right into the semifinals. On the bottom half of the draw, Guillermo, Guillermo Augusto beats um, Tex Johnson. Uh, Augusto then beat Devontae Johnson to get to the finals, where he faced Arnaldo Maidana, uh, who got there after Felipe Andrew was DQ'd, somewhat surprisingly. Uh, Now, Felipe Andrew did get to the finals of the open class and ended up winning the open class as well, which I'll get to. So, at least for him, he did get a gold medal here, but it was a bit of a disappointment that he got DQ'd against Maidana. Uh, But in the finals, Guillermo Augusto was able to beat Arnaldo Maidana. Um, At Ultra Heavy, in the finals, it was Luis Panza and um, Max Jimenez. And Jimenez was able to get on top for the most part. Panza had a couple attempts at his footlocks, but wasn't all that close to any submission attempts. But Jimenez was just constantly putting pressure on. Uh, Eventually passed him at the end of the match and was able to get the win. Um, And then in the open class, a lot of really good matches in here. Um, I'm just going to take a quick look through the bracket and see what's worth even mentioning. Uh, We had Morelos Santana versus Junotis Gracie. That was a good match. Um, He was able to get all the way through to the semifinals against uh, Felipe Andrew, where Santana injured his rib and was still able to gut it out and fight through that match, but ended up losing eventually to Felipe Andrew. Uh, we had Roberto Jimenez versus Felipe Andro, which was a good match. Uh, Felipe Andrew was able to catch a ankle lock on Jimenez, which probably took Jimenez out of his weight class. Um, so some good matches there. Uh, the bottom half of the bracket, let's see. Gustavo Batista ended up making it all the way through to the finals, including a win over Max Jimenez, who won the ultra heavyweight title. Uh, that was a pretty great showing for Batista. Um, I think outside of that, it was interesting that Devontae Johnson and Guillermo Augusto had a match. Uh, Guillermo Augusto won that match in the um, in the weight division, and he ended up winning the weight division as a whole. Um, but in this match, Devontae Johnson actually got the win over him. Uh, so that's also an interesting result worth mentioning. But again, in the finals, Felipe Andrew versus Gustavo Batista. Felipe got close to passing Gustavo's guard. Gustavo was on bottom for the whole time. Gustavo's an excellent guard passer, so he didn't really get an opportunity to, to use that in this match. Um, but then your pass attempt was enough for Felipe, for Felipe Andrew to get the win here and win the Pan Championships. Um, On the women's side, there were some good results as well. I'm not going to go through all of them. Uh, But a a few of the big names, uh, like Gabby McComb, uh, she won. Tubby Alquin, I believe, also won her division. Um, Really good match at middleweight between, I'm trying to think what her name is. Um, Girl from Autos. Let me just get a hold of that real quick. Uh, But point being, there were a lot of really good matches in the women's division as well. Um, A lot of really good girls from Brazil who weren't able to make it out, unfortunately, but we still got to see a lot of really good matches. But that middleweight match I was thinking of was Rafaela Geddes. Um, She did really well. She also got to the finals of Absolute, uh, but she had a match with Claire North, which was a, a, a pretty fun match. Had a couple opportunities where she was getting close to passing. Wasn't able to do so. Claire pretty much whenever she opened up offensively was getting pretty close to sweeping her and getting a, ahead on the points, but wasn't ever able to ever able to finish, uh, sort of put herself in a bit of a position where she was a little low on time. Uh, she had to get a sweep. Jaffaella just had to stay on top. And as a result, Jaffaella was able to get the win. Uh, so a lot of fun stuff from fans. It'll be interesting to see where we go from here. If, if they're going to announce anything with the world championships, if they're going to do anything like that, if they're waiting for a vaccine and what the idea is there. Cause again, I would, it makes a little more sense to have pan championships and have people from other parts of the world not being able to fly in. And it's just like people like within the American continent are competing. Um, but for the world championships, that'd be a little bit tougher to, to have to do. So we'll see what the IBJJF wants to do about that. They are going to be doing Nogi Pans in November, I believe. Uh, so another pan-American tournament. But we'll, we'll see if Worlds are coming up anytime soon. But that'll definitely be something to watch for. Final topic to talk about is wrestling. So they also had a pretty big tournament. Uh, in Coralville, Iowa, which is a neighboring town to Iowa city. So pretty much right by the campus of the university of Iowa, but they had, I'll, I'll just go through the results of the freestyle brackets, at least go through the finals. Uh, so 57 kilograms, they had Vito Rujau versus Dylan Raguson. Um, uh, Vito was able to win this match pretty easily, 13 to three, uh, 65, Andrew Lira's versus Evan Henderson. Uh, Lira's was able to win that match. By a score of five to one, we had Logan Massa, who I believe has now graduated from University of from um, from Michigan, uh, going up against Anthony Valencia, who I'm fairly certain is also graduated. Was a lot more successful in freestyle than folk style for whatever reason, um, but didn't have a great match here ends up losing by a score of 15 to two. Uh, Gabe Dean, former national champion from Cornell, uh, he ends up winning his bracket up against Nate, Nate Jackson by a score of one to one. Uh, Colin Moore ends up beating Kevin Gadsden who got to the finals after getting uh, technically getting a win over Kyle Snyder. Snyder got injured in that match. Uh, the hope would be that he'll be back in time for the U.S. team trials in March or whenever that ends, that ends up being. Uh, but he never liked to see a, a top USA wrestler get injured like that. But unfortunately that happened. He had to pull out. And in the finals at heavyweight, Mason Paris uh, got a dominant win over Tanner Hall. So Paris will definitely be a fun, a fun guy to watch moving forward. He, had, he showed a lot of improvement last season. Um, prior to losing to Gable Stevenson in the Big Tens. Um, but it'll be interesting to see how he looks this season, if he's able to to gain some ground on Gable maybe even be able to beat Gable. And then at that point, he's obviously going to be a top contender for the heavyweight championship for the NCAAs, um, but also from the University of Michigan there. So that covers it for this week. No big wrestling tournaments coming up next week. No big jiu-jitsu tournaments coming up next week. So if you're mostly just interested in MMA, there's going to be a lot less time focused on that. Um, maybe, maybe there'll be some cool stories that come up and it'll be worth mentioning those two sports again. But this is sort of a, a, a bit of an off week where both of them were having big events at the same time. Um, but for MMA, we've got that big card uh, with that awesome featherweight main event. Uh, we'll get to see Korean Zombie finally again. We're going to be able to get to see Brian right here for the first time since he lost to Max Holloway. If either of them gets a dominant win, there's a good chance that they're going to be propelled into a title fight pretty quickly as well. So, lots to talk about with that. I'm sure there'll be some more stories that come up over time, and I guess I'll just have to leave it at that. So, talk to you next week. Hopefully there's some some exciting stuff to talk about outside of just the fights.